Welcome to a new episode of Full Stack Cast. In this podcast, we're going to take a closer look at the humans behind Full Stack Fest, our ever-growing roster of amazing speakers. Their talks inspire us by widening our perspective and deepening our knowledge. But behind each one's technical expertise, there is an often lesser-known, well-rounded human with a wide range of interests and a unique life path. Fullstack Fest is an inspiring conference about software. It's happening on the first week of September in Barcelona, and it's organized by Codegram, who also produces podcast. I'm your host, Chus, and today's guest is Sarah Drasner. Sarah is an award-winning speaker, head of developer experience at Netlify, and View Core team member. She's also giving a workshop about design for developers the day before the conference. You can check it out at fullstackfest.com. I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're one of the most expected guests. You're quite uh, popular on the internet and stuff. Everyone's talking about you, your workshops, everything, everything you do, basically, which is a lot of stuff. And I'm especially interested in how, you know, how do you become a Sarah Drasner? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't, I don't think that people should think it's so high to be <laughs> me because I'm just a regular lady. Um, but, um, I, I came from probably like not the normal way of coming into programming. I started a long time ago. I started 16 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that. Um, so like, you know, college age, um, I was doing work for the field museum of natural history in Chicago. And I, um, was a scientific illustrator. So that meant that I drew snakes and lizards for encyclopedias. Um, and they, uh, they invented a camera that took the place of my job drawing these oh, wow. things. And so they asked me if I made websites and at the time websites weren't super complicated. They were like, H- they were still HTML, CSS, JavaScript, but they were just kind of like mostly HTML and some inline JavaScript and, we had image maps. It was crazy. Oh, yeah, image maps. Um, lots of tables. I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the webmaster at the Field Museum, we had webmasters back then, uh, took pity on me and kind of uh, taught me how to make industry quality things. Um, I, I was actually a college professor after that. I went to grad school and um, became a college professor, but I was still doing website work while I was doing the grad school and the um, teaching because I didn't make a lot of money. Um, so I made sites for Stanford and for UCSF and a few other kind of like scientific or medical, uh, related things. Um, and yeah, when I came back to, um, the U S I, I worked for an agency for a few years and that was pretty intense. Um, it was like, you had to, you know, clock your time, like a lawyer and sign out to use the bathroom. And like, we weren't allowed to talk to each other. And if you coded a newsletter in like different amounts of time for different, you know, newsletters, they would be like, what this one was two two minutes over the last time what happened or like if you're, yeah, it was, it's pretty intense minutes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like they were really intense. Um, so I did a lot of like since it was an agency, you, I had to do a ton of different stuff because you just don't know what your client is, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of have to adjust per client. So I would do like WordPress theme development or like fix up people's like messy style sheets, or I would just basically like any kind of, um, thing that they needed, like plugin writing plugins. Um, you know, they would just throw me at stuff. Um, and my boss used to make this joke, like if, if it needs to take a long time, give it to Sarah. (laughs) Um, um, because I tended to be, I don't know. I have like this weird thing where if something takes a really long time, I get really hyper-focused. Um, so they used to give me some like really weird arduous tasks when I was there, which was also really good for kind of leveling up. Um, and I, you know, stayed there long enough to become a lead. And then I was a lead, um, at a few different other places, most of which were, I was like, uh, working it for, for a bunch of distributed systems, databases and stuff, making their sites or their operational dashboards and hooking all that stuff up. Um, and then I was, um, at 
Trulia or Zillow. Uh, Zillow and Trulia are the same company. <laughs> um, and I managed a lot of like front end components for them and kind of like, you know, if the kind of thing where like, if you change one thing, it like affects 4,000 other things. Um, and then, and also just did like a bunch of other random work here and there as they needed me to as well. But most that was mainly my job. Um, and then I was a consultant. So I did a lot of different things for that too. Um, some people hired me for SVG animations. Some people hired me for building out animations and design systems. Some people hired me to just do regular dev and some people hired me to, you know, do that kind of component work. Um, like that's when I started using Vue because one of them, one of my clients used Vue and I had to learn it and it was, I actually really liked it. Um, so I just worked on, a myriad myriad of projects. Like I worked with Salesforce. I gave workshops to Netflix, like, and then just like a bunch of companies that are smaller too. I did work for smashing, um, Microsoft. Um, and then eventually Microsoft hired me and I worked for Microsoft for Azure for a couple of years. And now I just started like a month ago working at Netlify and I absolutely love it. I think it's probably the best fit of any job that I've had so far. Um, and I just love their product so much. It's just like, it was one of my favorite things even before I joined. That's why I reached out to them. Wow. So I mean, yeah. And now I get to lead a team there. And when you were self-employed, you were also giving workshops. Uh -huh. Was it like companies asking you to give workshops or something that you kind of were pushing to kind of yeah. I mean, it, I did a number, I did a range actually, actually, uh, probably like at least 50%, maybe more of my income was from workshops. So I would go speak at conferences and then also do workshops while I was at the conference. And one of the years that I was consulting, I did 54 conferences. That was a lot. Jesus. <laughs> uh, so I did workshops for almost, almost each one of those. Um, so they're really tiring, but very, very fulfilling because they're just so, um, hands-on where like when you give a speech, it's kind of a little bit more like a taste of things because you can't cover things in such depth. And then when you yeah. do a workshop, you really get to see like the students, the, like the light bulbs go on in students' heads and that they like, you can like help work out problems with people. And I just love that, um, so much. Um, I did do workshops for particular companies too. So it kind of went between like doing things for, um, for conferences and then companies would hire me for the day or a week or something like that. And, or then I would come on their staff or, and just train them for a little while. Um, so that also happened, uh, which were like kind of longer term engagements. So I'd like, I basically like act as lead where I set up the project and also trained people, um, so it was, yeah, it kind of was a range. And then there were web animation workshops I did with Valhead where we would find a venue and then the two of us would go there and um, give a workshop that we basically made. So not next, not attached to a conference. From back then, the web has changed quite a lot. Um, oh, yeah. Do, do you recognize the web that you started uh, doing? Oh, well, I think the thing that's been really healthy for me is because I think when I was younger, I'd be more absolutist. Like I'd be like, this is the one true way. And like, <laughs> I've seen enough of those things go in cycles or I've changed my mind enough times or like the whole web atmosphere has changed its mind so many times that I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I tend to be yeah. a little bit more like pragmatic and like, okay, well, this works for right now. And I'm very excited about it. Now there's probably trade-offs here and, uh, something will eventually will come along. That's a little bit different. I tend to be a little bit more on the side of it depends. And then like an explanation. I mean, it's not fun when people say it depends and then just leave you with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's but, kind of like kills the conversation. basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, uh, yeah, I like that. It depends with more explanation and reasoning behind this way versus that way and the caveats and like um, more of a discussion behind it. Um, so, but yeah, I think having been around for a little bit here has been really helpful in kind of grounding me against 
dogmatism yeah um and thinking that there's just one way of doing things i think that's very needed in our in our community in general because not only younger developers are like less experienced like myself when i was a bit less experienced i was a lot more uh, opinionated let's say now i'm still a little bit but i'm kind of recovering <laughs> you know when you consume a lot of hacker news and and reddit and stuff you tend to side with specific te technologies and feel part of a tribe and and all this stuff and this kind kind of uh, react people and they defend react is the best thing ever in the world and other people say javascript is the worst thing ever in the world and yeah yeah i think that that's true um i i really think that um it's hard not to in a way because you get excited about something right that like the positive side of that is that like you see a way that's really good or even like you get bit by another way of doing things and you're like oof never again yeah. um and so i think it's challenging to not start to feel like, look, this is the way that of the future. Um, and there are things that are kind of like obviously better to do. Like there are some things that where the trade-offs are so obviously in one way or another. So it's, it's tempting to do that with everything, especially because I think as a developer, you have to make a lot of decisions in a day. And there's um, a thing called decision fatigue, where you get kind of um, tired of making decisions. And so if you can think in those ways, it's really, you know, it's really elusive because you're like, oh, like if I can just think of the one true way for everything, I won't have to make so many decisions in a day and I can just build things really quickly. And that's why we end up with like pretty opinionated frameworks and stuff too, uh, because sometimes that's, that's, that's better. Um, sometimes it's, it actually helps us go faster, but the, the problem in that can always be that, if you get too dogmatic about something where there just are trade-offs or there are multiple ways of working, you can shut people out, you can make people feel unwelcome, you can actually start to ignore some things that are positives that you can learn from. Um, you know, a lot of the frameworks are like actively learning from each other and that's a good thing. That's like, you know, having some, you know, difference in, you know, framework land and then also some things where people are going, hey, you know, that's not such a bad idea. I mean, Vue is pretty much like, Evan like looked over a bunch of frameworks and was like, I like this part and I like this part and I like this part. Yeah, um, with Vue, I had the same experience. Like I, I just saw it uh, relatively re recently mm -hmm. and I was like, wow, I actually do like it. But at the beginning, I was also kind of guilty of, I was kind of trained in script with Omnext and this kind of mm -hmm. philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then when people talked about anything else, I felt like, ah, no. Nah. It can be that good. And then I had a look at Vue and I'm like, oh, wow, this is really good. It actually reminded me that I'm also getting old and a little bit like there's things to learn and I don't know everything. Basically, I don't know almost anything. So Yeah, like yeah. it's not like a relation. We don't have to be monogamous with all of the tools. That yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, um, I, I mean, I had the same kind of point of view. I was um, do, doing all this React Dev and then when I got hired for this project, I was like, ugh, I don't want to learn another framework. Um, but then I started working with you and I was like, oh, I really like this. It's like super legible and I know where everything is immediately and stuff. And uh, I think the, the thing that I always hear compared um, is the syntax. And that's such like a low kind of oh, level yeah. of things. Like when you're really working with the frameworks, the syntax tends for me not to be the thing that's that you really start to pay attention to. It's things like reactivity or computed properties or, you know, using watchers, like stuff like that are like really change my like my experience as a developer, like working working with something that's reactive versus not, or like um, understanding how caching works with computed properties is like a way bigger thing to me. And I don't feel like people really have that discussion because they just look at the, like you can see the syntax super fast, right? And so that's something that you can like, yeah, like lock down on super quickly. Um, but I think that that's true. Like when I, First heard about Svelte too. I was kind of like, oh, not another one. I don't have the time for this. And like, then when Svelte two came out, and a lot of people were kind of talking about it or angry, <laughs> um, <laughs> I went and looked, and I was like, this is cool, you know. Like, and it doesn't like hurt me working with Vue to think Svelte is cool. <laughs> like, um, yeah. so I, I, you know, I don't. I think that there's a little bit of um, a false dichotomy when we talk about these things. I think you know, React is wonderful, Vue is wonderful, Svelte is wonderful. There are reasons why I like each 
you know, there are particular things that I enjoy about one over the other, but that doesn't, that's an it depends kind of thing more than a, you should all go do this. <laughs> kind of yeah, thing. I think, I think an important idea is that sometimes when you feel there's so many frameworks, the first idea you get is that they are opposites of each other and they have made decisions specifically to be like different. But actually, in reality, it's just very organic. Like someone made something, then someone made something else inspired on that. Then these ideas kind of feed back into the first framework. And it's kind of a lot of times it's not just like choose your path. It's more like these paths are all like intertwined anyway. Yeah, so. yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, there's some there's some stuff where there's like um, when I think about, you know, kind of like abstractions, there are some things that you feel comfortable with being abstracted away and some things that you don't want abstracted away. And that's probably going to change per developer. Um, so there are some like personal preference keys in there, but yeah, like making sure that, you know, when we communicate those things that they're not super dogmatic and then there, well, I mean, I guess I should, even this part is like an, it depends. There are some things that it is helpful to be more dogmatic around. I think that's where like prettier comes in. Like I'm so sick of, I was so sick of, having arguments about, you know, semicolons or not semicolons or whatever. And then, mm. you know, prettier came along and I felt like it really refined code review uh, because we weren't, you know, bike shedding over stupid details anymore. We could kind of focus the conversation on the stuff that mattered. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of like an interesting piece of it too. Yeah. I used to be of the opinion that no, you know, like code style is a personal signature and like you have, you should have your own. And then I used to work with this guy who said, no, like, you know, when you commit, everything should be formatted a certain way and then no one cares. Yeah. And all the team has the same format. I'm like, I don't know, because, you know, this removes some kind of agency from the developer. But actually, tr the truth is, is it's a lot better because, yeah, the focus is stolen by these kind of bike shedding discussions. And this is really harmful. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I completely agree with you. There was one, I made this like teeny tiny JavaScript library a little while ago and I spent forever like hand formatting it and like making everything like amazing and then like when I put it out people were even commenting like what nice code formatting so when prettier came out I was like but like <laughs> I make it so nice <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was kind of like a personal point of pride for me and then um I you know I started working um with it in code bases where I was you know highly collaborative and I just realized that like a couple things about clean code, I think people tend to think of clean code as like well formatted. And I've even fallen in that into that trap too. But clean code really should be this like ability to parse what it does. I'm, I'm sorry for using the word parse, um, but <laughs> parse what it does cleanly, like, um, like understand it's not too convoluted. It does what it's intended to do and not you know, a bunch of side effects kind of other things. And yeah. so what the prettier thing allowed us to do was to get the like concept of clean code being formatting out of the way, refocus our efforts on clean code actually being the quality of the code. I think that's a much better use of our brain power. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Especially because some of those things don't have right answers. Semis versus not semis. Like, I'm sure there's people who would argue with me that that does have a right answer. But like, you can go back and forth about that all day. And I have seen people do that. So, yeah. yeah. It's a little I guess like it's the... the... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you go ahead. Saying. It's a little like the Vim Emacs argument. Like, yeah. it's just not going to go anywhere. <laughs> Exactly. And I've seen a little bit of a of a pattern that I think is quite interesting, especially for newer developers, because they haven't lived it, which is um, when you were drawing illustrations of snakes and, and stuff, and then this new technology came along and it made it obsolete in a way, right? Like you, you quickly jumped onto, mm -hmm. onto the next thing, which was, you know, they need a website. So you do the, the websites and you learn what it takes to do it. And it happened as well with your um, pretty formatting, right? You were doing all this stuff and then this thing comes along, makes it obsolete in a way. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, move on. Like now your, your value, your, your, the thing that you were proud of is useless, right? So now you have to move on onto something else and like provide value somewhere else. And I think a lot of developers haven't lived this. They, they've started with the technology and, and they haven't seen it go obsolete mm -hmm. yet, but this always happens mm -hmm. always. And 
I guess that's an argument against um, tribalizing around a specific technology, but would you give any advice to developers who um, basically they feel maybe stuck in a specific way or technology? Sure, that's a great question. I mean, honestly, I think I also was doing started doing development at a time where developer jobs weren't so like high paid and like glamorous and like, you know, you got to decide certain things about your job. Like it was like, you have to feed yourself and you do what you're told. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Kind of like, like, I don't, you know, I would like to eat lunch, so I'm going to do this and do whatever they tell me. Um, So, so um, in some ways that's definitely, that's definitely changed and changed from like the, I think there's a certain pickiness that's allowed nowadays that I didn't really get to have. Um, not that that, not that I'm saying like, Oh, poor me, but it just was, it's a paradigm shift, right? When you Mm. feel like you can decide things for yourself, that's a very different thing. Um, one thing I will say is that the industry always changes. So being flexible is probably the best sign that you're going to survive in the long Hall and you know be able to do your best work like remaining open and flexible and also if something makes you uncomfortable <laughs> uh, this is something that I've had to learn if some concept makes you uncomfortable it is actually worth investigating because there are some concepts that make you uncomfortable because they challenge you and they make you grow there are other concepts that make you feel uncomfortable because you just don't like them and that's fine too um, but there's you it's hard to tell the difference you know yeah there's, it is when you're first hearing about it you don't actually know why you feel uncomfortable so I would say always you know ha- putting aside a bit of time to explore if you can I know that some people have like families and they can't you know they don't have a lot of spare time but if you can set aside time to learn and explore and grow you're actually in a better um, position to to kind of stay in this industry, to grow in this industry, and to kind of um, survive all of the ebbs and flows that will come up. Because sometimes crazy things come out of nowhere and you just, you don't expect them. And in order to stay current, you have to kind of like allow your ego to take a back seat to learning. That is really, I think that's probably the best advice I've ever heard on, on, you know, developers and like development. It reminds me a little bit of, Sometimes when you're uh, when you're lacking in salt, your brain interprets that as it triggers like a sugar craving. Okay, but you're uh-huh. lacking in salt, and that, this reminds me a little bit of like when developers don't know something or feel like something is a little bit strange or they haven't heard of it, they confuse it with something being bad or unnecessary. Like mm-hmm. their reasoning, I guess, is like if I have, haven't heard of it or I don't know what it is it's probably not needed or it's bad because I'm a developer and I earn my wages, you know. I think you're like bug in the brain. I mean, that's the salt sugar thing is a really good metaphor that's really well stated because, yeah, there are some things that we, you know, we tend to believe or think or convince ourselves. There's tons of different ways that we lie to ourselves. So like yeah. one of the biggest things that I've talked to people about in, you know, some of the work that I've done and when people like, you know, kind of talk when we talk about, you know, development is that people think that there is a right, right brain, left brain, and they've done lots of studies to show that that's not true. Um, that actually your brain doesn't do right brain, left brain. And actually the kind of the opposite is true that the more you use your brain in myriad ways, the more synapses you create and fire across. And the more you're able to actually do a lot of different creative problem solving and makes you better at more things. So they're actually finding the opposite to be true. And so what I've noticed used to happen a lot I haven't seen it as much lately and I hope that people don't do it so much is that people will say, they'll like say, Oh, I'm such a bad designer as a way of saying, Oh, I'm a really good developer, but really that doesn't mean you're a good developer. You're just a bad designer. (laughs) Um, Your brain isn't like a pendulum that swings up and down and goes further one way or the other. You can learn different tasks. And I think the reason why people say stuff like that is, well, sometimes it's to put down, other people that might be good good at crossing uh, boundaries, but it's the other thing about it is that people try to convince themselves that they're not capable of more than one tasks, right? Like it yeah. may, it simplifies everything if you're just like I'm only good at this one thing and I never have to learn anything else, and that can be true. You know, certainly if you deep dive into something, that's really wonderful. You get to know that really well, but 
I think that if the more you challenge yourself to kind of push beyond the boundaries of what you know and think in a different kind of way, the more you'll find that there's just tons of different ways of thinking about a solution. And it kind of opens the world up to different possibilities, even within just really strict programming. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a limited amount of time in the world, but if you're going to spend time on this earth doing anything, feeding your mind is a, is a good way to, to spend your time. Yeah. I, I guess, um, a question that a lot of people might have, like, even if they want to become better, I guess they think, should I become more of a generalist? Should I learn something outside of my comfort zone or should I go deeper in, in my current kind of skill set? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. Um, I honestly think that sometimes what people do is they'll come, like I get these emails sometimes from people who are comparing themselves to me now at like one month or, or you know, one year or six months in the industry. And I, they're like, why haven't I learned as much as you? I'm like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> I have been doing this for a while. Like, give yourself a break. <laughs> um, I, I do think that there's possibility to do both, to deep dive in an area and then come back up and do some general work or like deep dive in an area and explore something else. But I don't think it happens all at once. And I, I think mm -hmm. if you're, a, if you're starting out, whoa, like give yourself a moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't, don't compare yourself to people who have been doing it much longer than you. And also don't compare yourself to what people put out in the world. Cause I know I make a lot of like crappy stuff that doesn't ever see the light of day. And I just show people the stuff that makes sense to show people. So, um, you know, I, I went to a CodePen meetup a while, little while ago and people were kind of being really shy about sharing. And so I just went up and I started, I opened up the, my private pens and showed people all this like garbage that I made. It's <laughs> like horrible. Just like, what is it? kill it with fire. <laughs> um, and, you know, it takes me a good amount of that stuff to make anything that's worth, you know, making public. So I think, you know, maybe I'm steering a little bit, but like, I think some po point in the question is like, I think there's some things that I'm a generalist at and some things that I'm really specifically, you know, skilled at and those things, and I, you can do both, but It, it didn't happen overnight, right? It happened over a longer period of time. Yeah, um, that's, I, I guess that's hard to grasp when you're just starting. You, you want to be that you know, developer that you dream of being um, right away. And it, it really takes a lot of time. And sometimes it takes a lot of time for, through paths that are not obvious. Like, for example, I'm sure that your time at the agency, it taught you a lot of things that a lot of people wouldn't like to go through that, but you learn a lot from them from from that right oh yeah absolutely i mean i think when i look back at that time it, it was really hard um <laughs> uh, I, i i probably wouldn't take it back because i leveled yeah. up so much but it's it's even hard to say that because it was just so rough um and i think that there's there's this temptation in in kind of inspiring juniors to say like oh don't worry it'll be fine and like you know it's not you know coding can be easy and things I, i'm not oh i it makes me uncomfortable because i'm not sure that that's true <laughs> um yeah like it's it's not necessarily always easy and i don't know if you're setting people up for success exactly to say things like that um but i know that that sounds gatekeepy too and i don't want to sound gatekeepy but i do want to manage people's expectation that Like, I'm not saying you should work every weekend or whatever and like, you know, do stuff that I, you know, like sometimes I've worked too hard and too much and, you know, been burnt myself out or something like that. I'm not saying that you should follow that because that's not great. But I do think that you do kind of get what you give. Um, and yes. so there's a bit of a balance there. Like it's, it's not also, it's also not setting people up for success to tell them that they don't have to try so hard because <laughs> you do kind of have to try hard in order to get, you know, at least advanced in something, but not everybody wants to be advanced in something. That's totally cool too. I just, I, I think if, if we're really on the level, if you want to level up in something, yeah, it's going to take a lot of focus and determination and some of that's not going to be exactly like 
the most fun, but some I think it's rewarding. Yeah, I think now that you brought up gatekeeping, there's room for everything. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if it's mm-hmm. a growing market, so if you want to just learn to make a basic website, there's plenty of websites to be made. So don't worry, mm-hmm. there's jobs. Like you can definitely work not really leveling up uh, that much. But if you want to level up, it is kind of, you know, the more you put in, the more you get, which is something that doesn't happen in a lot of industries. And in this one, it's pretty true that if you put more effort, if you learn more things, you'll eventually kind of surface. Um, and also people will notice you as well because, uh, you know, not that many people put a lot of effort. So you will definitely surface, but you don't have to. I guess like uh, reconciling these two views is hard because, you know, the people who are really skilled, they tend to think, no, everyone should be really skilled because I'm really skilled. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think um, there's... Plenty of room for everybody. There's lots of sites to be made. There's all sorts of different kinds of sites to be made. Um, there's also different kinds of jobs and levels of, of uh, you know, things. You, I mean, I've definitely been a dev who wanted to just code, and that was my day job. And then at night, I hung out with my friends or went home or whatever. And um, and then I had other points in my life where I was like, no, I really want to, you know, you know, make lots of stuff for other people and be out in the community and, you know, do open source in my spare time and still see my friends, but like, (laughs) um, but you know, I, I, you know, I worked a lot harder during some points and others and those periods sometimes lasted years, you know, some, some periods I just kind of coasted and some periods I worked really, really hard. So it's not just one right answer. And it's not even one right answer for, for each person, it, you can be different in different times in your life. I do think that like when I, the, I, I don't mean to make it sound like it's not fun. There's definitely stuff where I just have the best time programming. Like I wouldn't work on the weekends um, sometimes if I didn't find it fun. Right. Like I wouldn't yeah, like uh, there's, there are times like where it's rainy outside and I got my dogs and I watched a movie and I'm just coding and I'm just like having the best time. Um, so I'm, it's definitely not to say like hard work isn't fun because it can totally be just wonderful. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a, it can, it can be a commitment and that you do have to kind of see it through sometimes. And um, that's, that's a piece of that as well. I think you touched upon an issue that a lot of people are living in their own skin, which is this balance between, uh, you know, coding and, and the rest of life, let's say, um, <laughs> and avoiding burnout and like keeping motivation high because I've experienced it myself sometimes. I'm like really all in. I code a lot. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly I feel like kind of burned out or like lack of motivation. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to try mm-hmm. or like to experiment with. So how, you know, how would you advise like a new developer about balance and, and burnout? Yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's a good subject matter. I think um, um, for me personally, and I can't speak for other people, I tend not to burn out because of too much work. Like I, that doesn't mean that other people won't. Um, uh, that's just how I'm built. I don't tend to burn out. Like, like, just like the the woman I worked for who said, like, if you need something that takes a long time, give it to Sarah. Like, I don't mind working long hours. Um, what I do get burned out on is when I'm not aligned with the reasons why. Mm-hmm. So if I'm working heads down on something, or I'm working very hard on something, or I'm, you know you know, doing a ton of stuff, if people above me can't give me a good reason why I'm doing it, oh, I burn out super hard. Um, (laughs) Because I'm just not aligned with goals. And I feel like the work is pointless. And um, it makes me kind of like, really, it makes me really frustrated. um, Because I feel like the very base level, it should at least be about communication. Um, I I don't know exactly why that is, but like, yeah, if I think that something is going to like be a really great product for people or it's going to be super useful and helpful, then I have a very easy time working hard on it. But if I feel like I'm being taken advantage of or like we have no idea why we're doing this, we're just (laughs) doing it because someone said so, um, I just start to really um, lose focus, lose attention. I start to feel really depressed. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that tends to be when I burn out that, that resonates really, really highly with me, I think, because I'm, I have the same attitude. Um, 
And sometimes also maybe it's a skill to be able to kind of power through something that you don't believe in. I don't know if it's a skill or not, but you know, sometimes you have to do it, but yeah, it's true that, you know, for me, it's extremely depressing. Like I would say it's probably dangerous to my health to go too long, (laughs) you know, like this. There, there is a level of working too much that probably gets me burnt out. But um, yeah, that's, that's the one that really drives me down. Something I'm really curious about, because you're, you're giving workshops and like working with companies when you were a consultant, you've probably found very different attitudes to, to your advice and, and to your workshops. Like there's people who are really eager to try something new, to learn something from you. But there's probably people who you who who you find they have a strong resistance to change, mm-hmm. and how do you deal with that? Because that's a, another skill of its own. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, I feel like communication in general is like a whole different skill from programming. It's like you you fix you fix the code, and now you've gone into like PR land where you have to learn how to communicate with humans yeah. about your code. Um, uh, yeah. I think uh, it depends on the company culture. Of course, there are certain company there are cer- certain companies where people are super receptive to change. I mean, you know, working at Netlify, like, oh my god, everyone is so positive and like easygoing, and nobody's super like <laughs> like this is mine, don't touch it, um, <laughs> uh, which happens sometimes at companies. So like, uh, I've I've really come to appreciate that some of the reason why the product is so good is because the people are so collaborative and um, listen to each other and gain knowledge from each other without a lot of ego. And I've seen the opposite of that at other companies where people really get in their, their own way by like creating a culture of like, this is mine. That's yours. Don't touch it. Don't talk to me. (laughs) Um, or like people really resistant to change, um, people unwilling to listen to each other's opinions. Sometimes I got called in as a consultant, you know, totally like just to like settle arguments between teams, um, who had a hard time communicating. Um, and so I think, I think those kind of things can be super challenging. And that's even like, this can even change within a company. If you get a company big enough, some groups are really collaborative and some groups aren't, you know, if you have Mm. a, a company that's gigantic, it's not even necessarily something you can say about the whole company. You get like little pockets of, many companies inside of the company. Um, So I think that that culture can completely shift based on where you are. Um, And so, yeah, it's something that you have to read a little bit about the way that things go or the way that people talk to each other. Um, Some, some places, sometimes it's not necessarily a good or bad. It's just different, right? Like there are some companies where people are more straightforward and some companies where people use, more qualifiers. So one instance would, one example would be like, I think we needed this change versus I really like the way that we had it before, but I think we needed this change because this is happening and maybe we can change it in the future. Like neither of those are wrong and they convey the same thing, but depending on the company culture, you can have two ways of talking. And so Mm. as a consultant, I just found that I had to adjust the way that I was speaking a little bit based on the way that they talked. Yeah, that's so true. And that's similar to my experience as well. But even in a more granular way, sometimes I found that you need to identify, because when you come into a a team, basically it's like you come into a family or a home. Like there's the whole like dynamics that you don't know about. You need to figure out who is who, like who cares about what and, and how, you know, how do you have to talk to a specific person to, to kind of satisfy what they want, right? So maybe someone cares about maintainability. Maybe someone cares about, you know, something big bug, being buck-free or something like that, right? And you have to kind of sell it in a different way. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and that's different from when you're at a company and you can kind of, you know, you start to, like, have your, like, work wife and, like, um, <laughs> you start to have, like, the people that you are, are your, like, usual suspects of, you know, people that you know you can kind of, talk to and trust and depend on and stuff. Um, Whereas in a consultant relationship, you don't necessarily have that depending on the length of the engagement. Like eventually sometimes you do, but like if it's a shorter engagement, you just kind of have to, 
you know, have your ears out for how people, you know, work and pay attention to the things that, yeah, like you said, that they value. Some people value moving quickly. Some people value going slower and being more purposeful. Some people value um, not moving things too much. Some people are like, rewrite this, you know? (laughs) Um, And some of that also depends on people's budgets too. Like if they call me in and they have unlimited budget, obviously like I have a little bit of a longer leash. And then some people are like, look, we have $4,000. What can you do in this amount of time? You know? Um, So there, there can be different kind of things for that too. Yeah. I think uh, how does that contrast um, with your experience at working at, you know, such a big corporation like Microsoft? Well, I was consulting with Salesforce right before it. So it wasn't too hard of a transition because those are both really gigantic companies. And, um, it's not that their cultures were the same, but that concepts were similar where there's team, like I'd work on this team and then I'd work on that team and they're talking to each other. Um, Microsoft was very much like that, where, like I mentioned before, like companies within companies. Um, so it wasn't too much of a culture shock. Plus um, Zillow and Trulia isn't the size of Salesforce or Microsoft where it's just gigantic, but it's that's not a small company either. Um, so past a certain point, it's the same kind of thing where you've got a liaison between groups and get people's feedback and, you know, get kind of sign off. Um, I think there's like more sign off that happens in those bigger environments than in a smaller environment. If you want to make changes, you have to get buy-in for more people. And there's kind of more of a concept of selling your idea before you implement it at bigger companies, where smaller companies, you still do that a little bit, but it can be a little bit more collaborative because you can gather everybody in a room and be like, what do you think? And they can be like, I like it, but I don't like this part. And you kind of iterate. Whereas in big companies, if you're going to make a major change, or if you're going to, you know, do a larger project that takes time, you do need to like go up and get buy-in. And like, sometimes the idea changes in the time that you, it comes back down to you and you're like, wait, (laughs) this wasn't the thing. Um, so, so, um, you know, that, that can be kind of like a thing or the timelines can be much longer because they have the money to do that. So that like the, you know, kind of like an, an interesting thing that happens is that they're like, let's do this in like a few months or something. Whereas like a tinier company is like, we can't have it in two weeks. Like, wait, what? Like um, I consulted with like a company that was like seven people. And like, if you couldn't do it quickly, like what's going on there? Because they didn't have a lot of money to kind of burn on sitting around and thinking about things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it also, you know, it can affect the speed of, of things as well. So yeah, I think that those things can totally change based on the company. Yeah. Um, I wonder also how, how was your experience um, managing people as well? Because a lot of developers, they maybe aspire to be team leads or they totally don't want to manage anyone. And do you think there's, um, you know, any kind of good uh, synergy between managing people and coding? Yeah, totally. Um, when I was, uh, there are some jobs where I was uh, kind of more of a lead or like hybrid where I was managing people and also still coding. Um, so a lot of the jobs that I had were, were like that, um, that, you know, truly and Zillow was like that. Um, uh, and the kind of distributed systems jobs I had before that were like that. Um, uh, when I was, at Microsoft towards the end, I was doing a, like, I was still, I was doing IC work for a majority of the time and was promoted towards the end. And then I was doing a little less of the IC work and kind of doing more managerial tasks. And then at Netlify, I'm doing kind of more, more of the like leading, but also doing some, some work of my own. Um, But I think managing engineers is always really interesting. And I think it's um, the kind of what, what's, what's kind of interesting about it is that you have all of these articles all around about like how to do this technical concept, this technical concept, but people, we don't have a lot of articles about engineering management. Um, and I think that there could definitely stand to be more of them and people could stand to share because people basically what happens is you're, they're like, you're such a good engineer now become a baker. Like it's like a totally different (laughs) skill set. Um, and you know, um, that, that makes it a little bit challenging, but 
I, I also see why there aren't articles like that because you don't want to be divulging things about people in those articles. Like it's harder to share learnings about a human than it is about a yeah. code base. Um, one thing that I try to do with my employees is to be fairly transparent about the reasons why I'm making a change or, you know, adjusting things or we're working on something. Um, just because knowing myself, if I'm not like, like I said before, if I'm not aligned with the why I don't, I don't appreciate that. Like I, I, hmm. I can do better work if I understand what the trade-offs are and what the context is. Um, another thing is, well, when I was, Working at Zillow, like I got, this is like kind of funny. I, I used to like nerd swipe people <laughs> to get work done sometimes. If you don't know, if people on the podcast don't know what nerd swiping is, it's like when you, when you're just kind of like, you know, the webpack, webpack build should be doing this, but it's doing this other thing. Isn't that weird? And they'd be like, no, I don't have time for this. I got to do this other ticket. And I'm like, wait. And then they're like, wait why is it doing that? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't know, but it's okay. You, you know, you don't have to work on that right now. And then they'd be like, they'd be like damn it. So that might be a kind of evil, <laughs> evil way of managing, but I, it also like does the thing of making people interested on their own rather than me authoritatively telling them to do stuff. Um, I, I don't, I usually get more interested when someone treats it more like a puzzle than if somebody's like, I'm your manager and I told you so. Um, so I tend to lean into that kind of thing or just being, yeah, being transparent about why it's valuable. This um, is such a great trick. Like, I think the magic words <laughs> you said is, you don't have to work on this right now because that really <laughs> triggers me into like puzzle mode. You know, it's like, oh, no, 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 I want to do it. You know, <laughs> because it's not supposed, it's, it's not what I'm supposed to be doing. So. Yeah, like, it's up to you. You don't have to. Um, and like, tr you know, truthfully, I would have done it, you know, like, like I can cover stuff too. So um, if, if, if no one wants to do it, sometimes I'll do it. Um, but yeah, that's, there are probably other better ways of doing things, but I tended to do it things that way because I do tend to kind of think about what I would want as an engineer when I manage. And that's, that's how I, that's how I work. <laughs> so I think it tends to be, it's, it's a shame is what you said about, you know, when an engineer is, is really good, then they promote them to baker yeah and, you know manager and it's all there's all these self-taught bakers in town you know what i mean like every engineering <laughs> manager is like self-taught <laughs> completely yes. so it's like yeah uh, it's a shame like um it's basically hit or miss you know if, if you if you figure it out great if not you're a terrible manager yeah and like i i was talking to my friend sarah beer recently and she's like i never want to go into management because i don't want to mess up a person <laughs> um, and i think that that's a really good reason to not want to go into management um uh, it, it can be challenging because humans unlike code are non-deterministic like you, you like if you have a function you and you have a you know a well-written function, you're getting the same results every time you run it. With humans, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Like some days they're really tired. Some days they're really excited. Some days they like feel super motivated. Some days like they're dealing with personal issues and you don't necessarily even know. Um, but I think as a manager, the only thing that I've really figured out is being communicative and also letting them know what my, um, failures or preferences or whatever are so that they at least have some tools to work with me. Like uh, one thing I tell my um, employees is that I, I, I really value one-on-ones and I think that it's very important for them to have time. Uh, the, that time is for them, for us to talk about their career and growing them and not most of the other, all the other time is about uh, like the company. Right. But that time is their, their time. And um, one thing that I've noticed about myself is that if somebody brings a problem to me in a one-on-one, -on -one, I immediately try to fix it. And humans don't always want you to fix things. Like sometimes they just want to vent. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing I'll tell them is like, if you come to me and you have a problem and you want to vent, just let me know that this is venting time because then I'll listen. 
But if you don't tell me that, I'm just going to try to fix <laughs> fix your issue. <laughs> That's a really good um, advice. So yeah, and just, maybe just like knowing your limitations a little bit, which might only come from doing it wrong. And how do you deal with um, kind of conflict in a team? Like, for example, when someone is against a technical decision you you established, or maybe they're kind of uh, you know hesitant. Maybe they don't they don't think it's the right thing to do, or yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if, okay. So if it happens in a PR, um, I tend to like the the conversation goes only so long before I'll be like, okay, this method of communication isn't isn't immediate enough, or um, you can't like you get some mirror neuron things that happen when you look at someone's face that are a little bit devoid of empathy if you're just typing into a you know into a screen. So if if the if it's like in a code review or a PR and people are getting really heated, um, it will it will only go on so long before I'll pull them both off and say like, okay, let's all meet um, in person and talk about this, and then and then we can kind of suss things out a little bit better. Um, usually that yields pretty good results. Um, if it's a conflict that's bigger than that, that's like about a design decision, then yeah, we've got to, I mean, same kind of thing where we have to kind of sit down and hash things out. Pros and cons lists are good. Um, weighing different, like coming to the table with like, all right, all things being equal, there are probably different ways of doing this. So like, let's figure out which one works for us right now. Um, so if what one challenge that I've noticed that happens a lot is that there'll be two things and one of them is a really good idea maybe, but due to some of the constraints around, it's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, like it's this kind of like evergreen project, perfect world scenario. Someone coded something over the weekend and it was so cool and fun, but like for a large company where everyone would have to have buy-in and you're basically telling everybody that you're going to dump a new framework into an old existing code base because you liked it. Like, okay, like let's pause and really evaluate the constraints. Um, because sometimes people can only see like the, the shiny, um, and there, there are always more shinies out there. Um, so that, I think that that's been maybe one of the bigger conversations that I've had to kind of deal with conflict through is, um, kind of sitting down and saying like, you might be right. This might be a really good way of working, but here are the constraints that we're working within and like painting the picture of the entire code base, all the people we're sharing it with all of the, like, you know, what happens if this goes wrong kind of things. And if it's, if the idea emerges and is still great, then great. Um, but if, if not, then they can kind of see that, it's not that their idea was a bad one. It's just that there's a lot of other things that we're juggling to kind of make those decisions and not just like shutting it down. Like really people want to like, they want to feel heard, <laughs> like, like hearing them out. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing them out is really important. And sometimes they're right, you know? Um, so approaching the table and really listening to the things that they have to say, um, but yeah, sometimes there's a lot of constraints that suck and you just can't do everything, you know? Yeah, and I think this is aggravated by the issue that um, in general, people feel attached to their ideas and what they do. So it's like, it's really easy to hurt them if you mm. somehow put aside their idea or, you know, you have to really make it clear that it's not about them or that, you know, they're not being hurt, but it's just like at this moment, we need to do something else. Totally. Totally. This, this reminds me at a, at a client once I was really excited working, you know, when you get really excited working on something so much that you kind of go the extra mile and do something super cool that no one asked for, uh -huh. but you think that is really cool. So it was like a kind of a, a basic search basically it was like full text search, right. Um, over like a series of data. And then I I just implemented um, a little kind of Boolean algebra so that you can have like constraints and this and this term and this term, but or these other terms and stuff. So it was really cool. And you could search within the fields and there was like completion. It was really cool, right? Like I was so proud. And it took me like a couple of days, like all kind of head down just doing that. And um, uh -huh. then after that, I remember... I had a manager who saw it and I, I showed it off like super proud. Like, look, our users are going to love this. They can do all these kind of custom search. And he said, um, 
yeah, they're not going to understand it. I'm like, Aww. they will, you know, like in this case. <laughs> you can see the you can see the part where his heart breaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was like still like kind of clinging onto it. I'm like, no, you know, they're like traders. You know, they're people used to manipulating data and stuff. They They will definitely get it. And he said, no, I'm sorry, but I don't think so. I'm like, can we try it? Just give it to users. If they don't like it, we can revert it. And he said, no, I'm sorry. Like, no. (laughs) At that moment, I was like, all right. And like a few years back, that would have not ended well. Like I would have gone home like really upset and really kind of wrong with a feeling of like being wronged. Uh But actually, I think it was a sign that something changed in me and what I did is just delete the code uh-huh. and that's it. And that was like kind of almost like therapeutic. Like it was like, wow, I just deleted two days of work and it's okay. Like I'm not my code. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, divorcing yourself from that is really emotionally intelligent. I do wish that your manager had like talked it through with you a little bit more yeah. than that <laughs> or maybe done user testing or something um but you know user testing is kind of nice because then at least you get some data behind the decisions but um yeah but, right yeah. i would have liked to see like hard data backing um either either opinion but sometimes actually if i mean he didn't do it with this purpose but i think having to divorce yourself from your code for no reason Sometimes it can be like, it can teach you something. Oh, totally. I mean, and people should, people should understand that they're, they're not their code, right? Like, you know, people like it, I think that that's a really hard thing to detach yourself from. I have a hard time with that. Like the, you know, that I'm not my work kind of thing yeah. uh, because it's, you put so much of yourself into it. It's, it's very challenging not to feel like that. Yes, It's not the easiest thing in the entire world. You could even like tell yourself that when you're just sitting here and go like, I am not my code and be like, yeah, I understand <laughs> that. And then like two days later, be like, what the heck? They like filed an issue that was so rude. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think once yeah. I went to a, a code kata in like a meetup, I think it was a closure meetup or something like that. And the idea was horrifying at the beginning was just work on a problem for like 15 minutes and then delete all your code. Whoa. And I was like, what? No, I can't do that. And then go, do it all over again with a different design. Oh no, I cannot delete my work. <laughs> like, that's like <laughs> kind of <laughs> cutting off a limb or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, he, like Chris Coyer was making fun of me a, a little while back because he, I use the fork button on CodePen a lot. Like when I, I'm not, you know, doing quite as much work on CodePen as I used to, but I used to do a lot of work on CodePen and I would like, work on something for a little while and then fork it and then work on something just in case something got me. It was like my way of making like, you know, poor man's version control Um, (laughs) um, because of that concept of like, I cannot lose work. I cannot lose any of my work. Um, But yeah, I mean, there was one time that I like lost, you know, something that I would been working on for a while. And this wasn't in CodePen. This was just, I didn't commit it. Like I'd been working on it for a while. And then um, I forget what happened. I like, my computer died or something like that. And, um, I re I was really upset and then I re-implemented it and it was actually better than than the Mm. first time I wrote it. Um, so sometimes exercises like that can be really powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably a little bit cheesy, but you know, like sometimes I feel like when you write code, there's a byproduct of the code. Like the code is the byproduct, the byproduct and the real thing is happening inside you. So you delete the code and, you know, it's still within you what you learned about the problem or about the design. So yeah, totally. Yeah, it's fine. It's just a byproduct. You delete it and you can do it again and, and better. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, cool. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. This was a really nice conversation. Yeah, I think it has a lot of actionable, uh, actionable advice that usually you don't see in like a lot of blog posts. Yeah, I guess I should put the caveat in there. Like, you don't have to do things <laughs> like I d- did and had mistakes all through my life. So <laughs> go your own way too. Yeah, that's important to note as well. Like everyone has to build their their own path. Cool. So thank you cool. so much for for making it, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you again in September. 
at the conference. Yeah, I'm excited for Full Stack Fest. That's going to be so great. Yeah, I'll see you in September. Yeah, have a good one. Thank you so much. Bye. And to our listeners, I hope you've all enjoyed this episode. If you want to see Sarah on stage or sign up for her workshop about designing for developers, you can go to fullstackfest.com. Until next time and see you all in September. Bye.